All right, hey guys. I'm Mike, one of the pastors here at Trinity Life Church. And uh, if you came in this morning and got a program, you received a Connect card. So it's a blue and white, white card. If you haven't filled one out and you're new with us this morning, just take time to fill that out and you can drop it in the offering bag as it goes by later. Um, all right. Summer is here, guys. Cottage season is here. People on vacation. <laughs> But I'm excited you guys are here this morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, we have been going through the book of James. So we started at the beginning of the summer. We're going through the book of James through the whole summer. And uh, right now we're in chapter 3. So just to give you a little context of what we've been going through, James is he's showing us what wisdom looks like. So he starts off in, in the first chapter because all... This whole, this whole series is themed of faith that works, and, and James is all about faith in action. You know, we have, we have uh, faith that, we have beliefs, but he says if we have faith, those beliefs become action, and we actually live those out, and they actually transform us, and they do something in us. So he begins by, he, he sets it up by saying, uh, this is what wisdom looks like. And he talks about wisdom and says wisdom is something that is lived out and it's different from knowledge. We can accrue knowledge, right? We can get knowledge and, uh, and it can stay here. But he says wisdom is different from that. It's actually life experience. So it's lived out. And he says the goal of that, the goal of living that out, like why, why live it out is, is the question. Uh, he says the goal of that is maturation in your faith. It's completion. It's perfection in your faith. And that's, that's what we're trying to get to. And then he starts talking about the way you speak. So he's talking about the way you live, and then he starts talking about the way you speak and, and the, the tongue, which Dolly read about. And it's already come up a few times before we get to chapter 3 here. It's, it's come up as an indicator of wisdom in the first chapter. He says, you can say things, but if you don't do them, then what you believe is actually worthless. So he says that. Uh, and then he also says that we're often quick to speak, but we should actually be slow to speak. And he goes through, a different, he goes through different sins, I, should, I guess I, should, I could say, sins of the tongue. So in, in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 13, he says that oftentimes we blame shift. So that's, that's a sin of speech, of, of the tongue. When we do something wrong and then we shift the blame. And he says sometimes we blame God. And we start throwing the blame on God. And so blame shifting is one of those things. Verse 20 in chapter 1, he talks about anger. He says, be slow to speak, uh, be slow to anger, because often we're quick to speak and we're quick to get angry. So he says anger is one of those things. Deception is one of those things in, in chapter 2. Partiality is one of those things in chapter 2. And then insults, evil, blasphemy, those are... Those are also things that he brings up in chapter 2, and vain words. Sometimes our, our, our words are just empty. We say things, and we don't follow through, or, um, or we don't actually believe them, and so he says they're, they're vain. So these are all kind of different sins of speech. And then we come to chapter 3. So the point is, he's, we've, all, we've been talking about for the past few weeks that faith needs to be lived out. So faith in works, faith in action. But also James is really highlighting speech. Our faith comes, comes through what we say. And words are powerful. Words carry a lot of weight. 
and power in them. Just think about so just think about Twitter and Facebook. A lot of you guys have grown up in this social media generation where everything's through these social media platforms. And that's how, that's how a lot of us communicate now, through social media. And I love it and I hate it. I love it because it's easy, right? It makes it easy. But I hate it because we've, we've lost how to communicate properly. We shorten things. We People are notorious for just typing things in and hitting enter. And then be like, oh, I shouldn't have wrote that. And then, you, you know, you're on Facebook, and then one little comment that you thought was harmless or that your friends thought was harmless started this whole rant with people just, like, firing at it. And it just goes and goes and goes. Twitter's like that. Facebook is like that. And it's, and it's taught us that it, it, it's taught us not to communicate well is, is what it's done. Uh, and, but people also do this in speeches and in other forms. I mean, look at Donald Trump this past week. I don't know if you guys followed the news the past couple of weeks. Donald Trump said some things, and then his, his words actually got him axed from different things. Like, they, they, like NBC dropped, dropped him. People are boycotting the, na- na- um, what do you call it? Networks are boycotting, like, the Miss Universe pageant, things like that, because he funds those things. So his words had huge consequences because he just threw out a couple words that he didn't think about. He didn't think about how they would, how, they, how people would respond to him. So here's, here's another example. You guys know who George W. Bush is, right? Best president of the United States ever. 43rd president of the United States of America. He has, he's known for a lot of his, what I call, Bushisms, where he just like butchers stuff. So here's, here's one of them. He says, you teach a child to read, and he or her will be able to pass the literacy test. <laughs> he said that in Tennessee in 2001, just, just after he got in office. Here's another one, New Hampshire 2000, just got in office. He says, I know how hard it is for you to put food on your family. <laughs> another one, South Carolina, year 2000. Rarely is the question asked, is our children learning? In South Carolina, they'd probably be like, yeah, that's good grammar. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, you guys, these guys are North Carolina, so that's totally different than South Carolina. My parents actually retired in South Carolina, uh, just across the North Carolina border. Um, We give them a hard time for that. So he said this next quote in D.C. in 2000, if this were a dictatorship, it'd be a heck of a lot easier, just so long as I'm the dictator. <laughs> Why would he say that? I don't know. DC 2004, our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. Like, really, uh, I don't know. George Bush. The last one. Too many good docs are getting out of the business. Too many OBGYNs aren't able to practice their love with women all across the country. Missouri, 2004. So he's known for all these, like, mess-ups, where he just says stuff, and he, he, he takes out whole phrases out of a sentence and then puts it together. But what a lot of people don't remember Bush for is his powerful words. I remember when 9-11 happened, 
Uh, I know many of us probably remember where we were when we heard the news. Um, I was in university, I think I was a uh, second year in, or third year, third year in university, and my alarm went off, and it was to the radio, and I heard, I heard, you know, what was on the radio, so I turned the TV on in my room right away, and I saw the second plane crash in the towers live on, on CNN, and I mean, it was horrendous, right? And four days later, I mean, the nation is in shock. The nation is just, we didn't know what to expect. That had never, nothing like that had ever happened before, uh, really in the West, in the Western Hemisphere, right? And then it was like, wow, this is, this is scary. And so the, the whole Western Hemisphere is in shock. Like, wow, why, how did this happen? I mean, this, New York's pretty close to Toronto. I mean, we're like, this is crazy. And so... Bush is at Ground Zero three or four days later, and you guys maybe remember this, this picture. He has a megaphone. He's standing with all these rescue workers around him. And he says thank you. He starts off with thank you, and it's a really short thing. It's really impromptu. He wasn't planning on speaking. They just shoved a megaphone in his hand and said, you need to say something. So he gets up on this pile, and he's like, thank you. Thank you for what you guys are doing. Thank you for all being out here. Rescue workers came from all over uh, a few countries to come and help out. So he's thanking them. He's thanking them for their prayers. He's saying that the nation's praying for you guys. And a rescue worker shouts out, I can't hear you. And he responds, and this is when you knew he, was, he had a lot of charisma. He responds and he says, I can hear you. I can hear you. And he yells it and he says, we can hear you. The nation can hear you. The rest of the world can hear you. And those who did this, they're going to hear us very soon. And like everyone just start, all the rescue workers start chanting, USA, USA. I mean, typical American, right? They're like, US. But uh, the point is, those words that he said were very simple, but they carried so much power and so much weight, and they got a nation back on its feet. And it was that moment when uh, we were like, okay, like we can do this. And then they did it. They cleaned it up. Now Freedom Tower is open and from there. So we'll get back to that later, but he's, these words that he spoke were powerful and they, they lifted people up. And our faith, like we've been talking about, becomes alive with works. That's what James says. Our faith is alive with works. Our faith is powerful with words, though. So we awaken faith with our works, right? He says uh, a dead faith has no works. We, awake, we, we awaken it with works, but we empower it with our words and what we say. Same thing with a community of faith. A community of faith is built on what we do what we do in our city, what we do with each other, what we do uh, in this world, but it's multiplied by what we say, okay? That's just as important. And James puts the context of chapter 3 of what Dahlia read in the context of the church, of the community of faith, because he's, he starts off by talking to teachers. And he says, he says teachers... They'll be judged with greater strictness. 
And many of you are attracted to the community of faith. Many of you are attracted to Trinity life, not because of the teachers, <laughs> but because of what we do in the city. Many of you are attracted to Trinity life because of the community of faith, what you've experienced here in the community. And James, now he goes, goes to teachers here. And, and there's two things. There's, there's two reasons why I think the community is attractive. One is here at Trinity Life, we're, we're building a culture of family. And two, we're building a culture of affirmation. So we're going to hit those two things this morning. So in the passage, verse 1, he says, my brothers first. He says, teachers, and he goes into it, and he says, my brothers, listen to this, so brothers and sisters. So right off the bat, and James pulls this terminology out all throughout the book. He always reminds them that you are my brothers and you are my sisters, okay? And he's, because he's reminding them that we're a family. We're the family of God. No one's above the other. No one's, there's, there's no hierarchy here. It's not uh, this isn't a business, this isn't a, a company. I'm not the CEO and you guys are my employees. He says, no, this is, this is a family. You guys are my brothers and you guys are my sisters, and we treat it that way. And he addresses teachers because teachers definitely lead by, we lead by what we do, but who's talking the most? Don't say my name out loud. But, but normally it's the teachers, right? We're, we're the ones talking a lot. We're, we're talking up here. We're, we're talking in groups. We're, we're doing a lot of the talking. And that's why he's, he's uh, going to talk about the tongue here. Because teachers speak a lot more, which means that teachers are going to be held accountable to a lot more. It doesn't mean that there's a different standard. So a lot of people look at this and they say, oh, well, that, there's a different standard for teachers. There's a greater strictness. But remember, James has just finished saying... Don't just, be, don't just be hearers of the word, but also be doers of the word. It's the same standard for everybody. We're all supposed to do the word. Uh, but the teacher is the one also up here or wherever. I mean, you guys teach each other too, saying something. It's like if, if uh, my dad growing up says to me, don't do this, but then I look next minute and he's doing it. Well, he's, he's his, his uh, same standard but he's held to a greater strictness because he just told me not to do it, right? So same, same idea here. And then in verse 2, he goes and he says, he kind of levels the playing field. He says, well, we all stumble. He says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone doesn't, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. So there's four characteristics I want to pull out of here of what family culture should be, of what family culture is at Trinity Life. And the cool thing about Trinity Life is we're not a family that is just us. We want a big family. We want to add people to the family. We want to welcome people into the family. So if you're here this morning and this is your first time here, like, we want to welcome you as family. So four character characteristics of family. One is failure. That sounds weird, right? Failure. The more we speak, going off this passage, the more opportunities we'll have to stumble. He says we all stumble in many ways. This doesn't mean we should be silent because it's a safe place to fail. We tell our, our interns this all the time. 
And you get to be in this environment where we all get to fail, and then we get to lift each other up, and we get to learn from our mistakes, and we get to move forward together. Uh, so no judgment there, no condemnation. It's a safe place to fail because he says here we all stumble. So guess what? When you leave here today, you're probably going to stumble again and tomorrow and tomorrow and the next day. But we all get to encourage one another uh, in our stumbling and we all get to learn from our stumbling so that maybe and hopefully we don't do it again. So failure is one. The second characteristic, confrontation. We don't like confrontation normally. I only know a few people that like confrontation. One of them is me. Uh, (laughs) It's kind of weird, actually. Um, So, but if we're family, this shouldn't be a bad thing. Confrontation shouldn't be a bad thing. We kind of it has this negative connotation, right? Because it makes us awkward and uncomfortable. But if we're in a family. Confrontation shouldn't be a bad thing. It should be a healthy thing. Okay, not, it's not, maybe not necessarily a good thing, but it's a healthy thing. We should want to confront each other because of, of Matthew 18. So gonna, let me read this passage. It'll, it'll be up on the screen. This is Matthew 18, 15 through 18. These are the principles Jesus gives us for confrontation. He says in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. He doesn't say, ignore it, and then you guys will both forget about it, and it'll get better over time. He doesn't say, uh, go and tell everybody else about what he did so that everyone can get on your side. He says, no, if he sins against you, go tell him. Why, why would he say that? Why would he say, go tell him? Maybe because your brother or your sister isn't aware of it. Or maybe because they are aware of it, but you know that that's not how they normally act or they should act. Different reasons, right? But he says, don't go to other people. You go to your brother. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, not so that you can gang up on him, but that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. They're just there to observe. They may mediate, but they're not there to gang up. Okay? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is where the family of God comes in. And this isn't, this is done very formally a lot of times. This is like what we call church discipline. It's done very formally a lot of times. We like to think of it as a family. And in, in family, we don't... Uh, your first family may be different, but in my family, we deal with things, but we don't, like, call a meeting at 10 o'clock and have everybody there necessarily and, you know, have, like, minutes and all that stuff that we take notes. Uh, we just... We deal with things with like, fam- like family would in love in honor and respect. So... He says here, if you refuse to listen, take to the church. If you refuse to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So let him, let him be to you as, as someone you don't normally deal with. And verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's power in, in our words there is what he's getting at. So 
if we look at confrontation like that, then it's not bad. It should be healthy because what it does is it actually brings healing, not division. He says the point is to gain your brother back, not to create more division and strife. And this is in the context of, of Peter saying, Jesus, if my brother sins against me, how many times do I forgive him if he keeps on sinning against me? And Jesus says, an infinite amount of times. If he sins against you, forgive him. If he sins against you again, forgive him. If he sins against you again, forgive him. If he, and he keeps on going. He says, infinitely, forgive him. And so when we lead with forgiveness, then confrontation isn't a big deal. When we lead with pride and say, and confront people because you think you were wronged, and you may have been wrong, but you're putting yourself in a position of uh, authority or you know, of, of um, the victim even, uh, and not, not, not going in with forgiveness, then confrontation will be a little off there. He says the whole point is to gain our brother back, not to condemn our brother, okay? A lot of times when we confront, we want that person to say, what you did was wrong, and I want you to make it up to me, right? That's, that's uh, how we deal with confrontation many times, and that's, that's not the point. We're just supposed to gain our brother or our sister back. Okay, so confrontation should be healthy. That's a characteristic of a family culture. So if you have an issue with something I've said, most likely I probably don't know I offended you. So you should just come tell me. And most likely, 99.9% time, time, of the time, it wasn't intentional. I'll never say always, but 99.9% of the time it wasn't intentional. And those are good assumptions to make. Kelly offends me all the time. And so, <laughs> but I'm going to tell her. Like, I, I would tell her she did. And that's going that's gonna to stop something from happening that, that could get even bigger. Okay? So that's the culture we, we're, we're trying to build here. So failure, confrontation. And then he, he talks about this too, uh, accountability. So I just finished premarital counseling with an awesome couple some of you guys might remember Andrew and Laura, soon to be Bennett. I uh, just finished premarital counseling with them. And one of the easiest couples I've ever had the privilege of kind of walking through things with. And because they were, they were there to learn and listen, and they were there to build into each other. And they were there to get closer to the Father. So we did, I did premarital counseling with them. And one of the main things I tell couples when they get married is that you guys are partners in holiness. Okay? This is something in marriage we don't think a lot about or in relationships in general. But in marriage, this is key. So I tell them in marriage, you guys are partners in each other's holiness. That doesn't mean condemnation or judgment. That means you get to lift Andrew. You get to lift Laura up to the Father. Laura, you get to lift Andrew up to the Father. And that's such a beautiful thing. And you get, because you're going to see sins in each other that you never knew existed in marriage. Uh, yeah, marriage brings out the best and the worst in my wife. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it brings out the worst in me. So, uh, but it brings out the best in us too. And because you partners, in, but once we recognize we're partners in holiness, that's a whole different perspective. But that isn't just marriage, guys. That's with any relationship in the body of Christ. We are all partners in holiness, in each other's holiness. And it's such a beautiful thing because I get to lift you up to the Father. 
I get to pour into your relationship with the eternal God. And I get to help you get closer to him. And you get to do that to me as well. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing that we get to do that and have that eternal impact on each, other in, on each other's relationship? And so remember, in this sort of accountability, it's not an accountability where you're watching the person to see if they mess up or not. It's the type of accountability that leads with forgiveness and, and mercy and lifts the other person up. Last thing, so failure, confrontation, accountability, and last thing is self-control. He says, the perfect man is able to bridle his whole body. Self-control is, this, is one of the fruits of the Spirit, that when the Spirit works in you, he produces self-control. And this is, this is what accountability actually leads to. It leads to self-control. And the question is, what's your bridle? What's bridling you? In James... Remember, it's wisdom. Wisdom is the bridle. Wisdom is what's directing you, which is the word of God, the fear of the Lord, the word of God. This is what what wisdom is lived out. But what's bridling you? Is it, as a Christian, is it God's word? Is it anger? Is it your depression? Is it your anxiety? As a non-Christian, is it, those things. Is it your job? Is it your family? Like none of these, some of these things aren't bad things, right? Is it your relationship with your boyfriend, your girlfriend? Is it your singleness? Is it your idol of success or money? What's bridling you? James is saying it should be wisdom. When I surrendered to the ministry, so, Missy and I met in university, we got engaged after, and then after we got engaged, I felt God calling me into ministry. I didn't want ministry. If you'd given me a list of a thousand things to write, and I wrote down all these different careers and occupations, ministry would not have made the list. I would have had, like, bird poop cleaner on the sidewalk before before that, if that's a thing. Like, I would have had that. Uh, I didn't want ministry. I love the church. I was a strong believer. Um, I love the church, but I didn't want to be a minister, and that's because we were business majors, which means that I wanted to make money. I wanted to be successful. I had these idols that God had to crush in me. And so I told Missy, I, I knew God was calling me into the ministry, and I'd fought it for so long, so I sat Missy down. I just proposed to her, and she said yes. And then I had a, and we had these dreams, like we had all the, we had these dreams of grandeur and the American dream living out. And uh, I said, I have something to tell you, it's important. And I wasn't worried that she would, she would think any less of me or anything. Um, But uh, I actually was worried about her family, her family's, their, Missy became a believer after we met, so none of her family, um, they're, they're not believers, so. What would they think now that she's going to be married, like we're going to be in ministry? So anyways, I sat her down, and I just stared at her for an hour and a half straight because I couldn't get the words out of my mouth. And she just sat there. She didn't give me any help. She just sat there patiently and looked at me, 
And I would kind of start, and then I'd stop. And I'd start, and I'd get a little further, and I'd stop. And a little bit further, and I'd stop. And I finally, like, probably, like, blurted it out in tears and saliva. I was like, blah, God's calling ministry. And because I knew if I said it out loud, there was power in that. Now someone else would know, and I'd be held accountable. And so that's why it took me forever to say it, because I, I had a lot of work to do in my own heart. So I finally said it, and she confirmed it right away, actually. She said, I knew that's what you were going to tell me. And I was like, why did you just say that? <laughs> but then she said, I knew you had to say it for yourself. And it's, she was able to confirm that because we were both seeking God and listening to the Spirit, and we're both doing that together. We talk about a Trinity life in, in this family culture that we're building. We talk a lot about hearing, trusting, and obeying. That's discipleship at Trinity Life, hearing God's voice, trusting it enough to obey it. And when we do that together, that's when we really get to influence our city and the world. That's our vision statement, right? Identity, destiny in Christ, influencing our city and the world. When we hear, trust, and obey together, seeking God together, when we have this family, culture, accountability, when we can confront each other openly, transparently, when we're not afraid to fail, and when we're able to be controlled by the Spirit, and He produces the self-control in us, that's when we're going to build and multiply a community of faith because we're going to be living out our faith and we're going to be speaking out our faith at the same time, and there's power in that. Second thing, though, is... We're also building a culture of affirmation. So verse 3, he gives three examples. He gives the horse, he gives the boat, and then he gives the fire. So we're going to hit all those things. First example, he says in verse 3, If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So this is a wild animal, right? It's a wild animal. They're pretty big. And they're controlled by a very small thing. This, this bit and this bridle. And now he goes from a wild animal to becoming useful and guided. You know, use it for work or to, to take you places. Misty and I were at Medieval Times a couple weeks ago. We got really cheap tickets to Medieval Times. And has anyone been to Medieval Times? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, were we Red Knight? Yeah, Red Knight. Uh, so... Medieval times is pretty awesome. It's something I'd want to do all growing up, but my parents were too cheap to let me go. I'm just kidding, but it's true. <laughs> so actually, I'm not kidding. <laughs> but we never went. So then I moved to a city that has medieval times. So we went, and it was pretty epic. It was, it was pretty... I'd read some reviews on it, and they are like... It's so cheesy. If you're a kid, you'll like it. But So we went, and I was like, this is amazing. You just have to be a kid and get into it. So they did some really cool stuff with horses. And they did, they did some dressage stuff. And the horse comes out, and he's kind of he's prancing along. And they do this really cool prance diagonally. The horse goes up diagonally. And it's beautiful that the guy... And it doesn't even look like the rider is doing anything different. Like, I don't know anything about horses or dressage or riding horses or I don't know anything about that stuff. But 
I don't know what he was doing differently with, his, with the bridle and the bit, but the horse would move in different directions and go diagonally. And then uh, they would do all, all kinds of stuff. He even got the horse one time to jump on all fours and click its back heels. Yeah, wow. Thank you. I got one wow. Come on, guys. A whole horse jumped on, his, on all fours and clicked its back heels. I can't even click my heels and jump in the air. So... And I don't know how you tell the horse or train the horse to do that, but they did that, and it was beautiful. And it's because the horse is being guided by something. It's, being, it's bridled by something. And that's just like the tongue. When we bridle the tongue, when we bridle what we say, and it's controlled and bridled by wisdom, it's a really beautiful thing. We get to speak wisdom and life into each other. That's the good. Then there's the bad. So at medieval times, they had multiple horses on at one point, and there's some horses that were prancing beautifully, and there's one horse, he was, <laughs> he was like, I don't know what the rider was doing, but he didn't, the horse didn't know what to do. He was like stutter stepping, like all the horses were kind of like going, had a nice flow. This horse was like, ugh, ugh, and he was like kind of going like this, you know, weaving in and out, zigzag, and it wasn't pretty at all. But then sometimes he would get in line and he'd do what the other horses did. But then other times he was just kind of messed up. And that's kind of like us too. For most of us, that's our reality, right? For most of us, the good is in our reality. The bad is our reality. We're, the things we say, we're messing up most of the time. But then sometimes it's beautiful. Right? Sometimes we're in line. But then there's the ugly. And this is where it gets really bad. This didn't happen at medieval times, but I had a friend in grade four. Her name was Nikki, and she did. She trained with horses, and one day, while well, this was in grade four, when she was riding her horse, it bucked her off. She fell under it, and it stomped on her face. Unfortunately for us, that's what we do with our words a lot of times. We throw people off, and then we just stomp them. And the horse wasn't doing it intentionally. The horse is just being a horse, right? It's not about intent, guys. Sometimes we say, oh, I'm sorry I said that. I didn't mean, well, it doesn't matter what you meant. What you said came across a certain way, and those words carry something with, with or without intent. The horse didn't mean to do this, but the horse was still responsible for crushing her skull. And we do that with words so often. We take what God has given us, language that's so powerful, and we use it for things that are so ugly and not things that are beautiful. And a culture of affirmation doesn't do that. A culture of affirmation, there's hardly any ugly in it because we're always trying to go to the good right I should say Nikki made a full recovery Um, she has a lot of scarring on her face but she made a full recovery and she played Annie in the city play later that year Um, and it was beautiful our whole class went to see her so But if a community of faith is multiplied by what we say, what are we multiplying? What are you multiplying by what you say? 
Are you breeding life or are you breeding death? Truth and justice or lies and brokenness? Are you breeding pain or healing? We have the opportunity to be a culture of affirmation. And verse, uh, verse 4, the second example he gives is about ships. And he starts off with saying, look. And it's kind of this exclamation in the scriptures. He's saying, look. And, and he kind of ups the ante with the, the example here because he goes to a ship. So he went to, from horse to ship. Now, a horse is carrying one person, maybe some goods. A ship is carrying many people and a whole bunch of goods. And so he says it's controlled by a rudder, by something very small. And the proportion there is even smaller than a horse to a bit, a ship to a small rudder. And it's controlled by this very small thing. And so he's just kind of making it, uh, making it more clear here. He's reiterating the same example. Everyone knows about the Titanic. Everyone probably knows that the Titanic sunk by hitting an iceberg on its starboard side and, you know, filled up, sunk, broken half, and then, and then I think over 1,500 of the 2,200 people died that day on the Titanic. And there's less than a minute between when they spotted the iceberg and then the point of impact. It was like 37 seconds or something between the times. And it wasn't out of control. That's the thing. It's not like the Titanic was going all over the ocean. It was very much in control. It had its path, and it was going in, in a certain, had a certain trajectory. But there are many factors that contributed to the disaster. So one they found was they, they were cutting costs on rivets. And so where they should have put rivets, they put them in a different place. So they were cutting costs. So where it got hit, too, was on that side, the right side, the starboard side where it got hit. And... They're saying maybe, they don't know, but maybe if the rivets were, if they hadn't cut costs on it, it wouldn't have been as bad. Probably would have still ripped, but it wouldn't have been as bad. Also, there was unseasonably warm weather at the time. So a lot of, that's why there are icebergs that far south in the North Atlantic. They'd broken off and and come down. Global warming all the way back in, what, 1914. (laughs) So unseasonably warm weather. And then the weather, because of that, caused a phenomenon known as thermal inversion. So it created like this mirage on the horizon, and it, it caused the depth perception to be skewed. So that's why, they couldn't, that's why they didn't spot the iceberg quick enough. And then the captains and the crew members, they actually had a lot of ships going on different routes at the same time and ahead of them, saying, hey, look out for these things, look out for these things. And eventually the guy who was manning the radio said... These, this is his quote. He said, shut up. I don't want to hear this anymore. We're on this course. And he, I think, I can't remember which course he named, but he named a specific course. And so they cut off that communication. They weren't listening to it anymore. They didn't, do, they didn't take these, this advice or, or these reports. So in the same way, what comes out of our mouths is determined by many factors. And it's not that we're really out of control because we're, we're very much in control of the things that we say. But how do we build? It's, it's what our goal is. So how do we build a culture of affirmation? Three things. Be generous. Most times we think that only applies to money, but be generous. We're lazy. When it comes to communication, we're lazy. 
We only tend to communicate what we think, what we think is necessary. We cut costs like they did on the Titanic. And instead of doing the work of communicating things, whether we communicate them multiple times or whether we communicate praise and affirmation, we just don't do it. Think about that. How many of you guys look to praise other people and go the extra effort to praise somebody else? A culture of affirmation does that. It goes the extra mile or kilometer to praise somebody else for something they did. We can only do that by uh, the second thing, being prepared. Generally, we're apathetic. We lack intentionality. We don't pay attention to the unseasonably warm weather. We don't, we don't do those things. And we don't look for opportunities. So we can only go, we can only be generous when we're looking for opportunities to praise other people. But sometimes we just, like I said, we just lack intentionality or we're, we're apathetic to it. We just don't really care to do it. But if we're looking to praise other people, we're going to find opportunities to do that. And I mean lift other people up. Like, we get to do that, remember? We get to do that in in the family of God, in the body of Christ. We get to lift each other up. And that's an amazing thing. And the third thing is be humble. This is actually easier than it may seem. I would know. I'm very humble. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, But it is. It's actually easier than it seems, being humble. One of the main reasons we don't affirm people is because we're afraid that if we do that, then they're going to look better than us. And we wouldn't want that, right? We wouldn't want someone to, to look better than us. And so as someone who, at your job, you don't want to say, oh, wow, that was good thinking to, in a meeting to somebody because then you're going to look worse than they did. So in our minds, we think our value goes down in other people's eyes. But what if we thought about it like when we're humble and we praise other people and lift them up, our value actually goes up. That's the gospel. James says later on, he says, if you humble yourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. He'll do it. Isn't that so much better than us doing it ourselves? When we do it ourselves, it doesn't last very long. But when God does it, it has eternal significance. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he'll do the exalting. And he didn't say, and that's a really cool word, right? He'll exalt you. That word is used for someone else in the scriptures. Jesus. He'll make you more like Jesus. That's, that's pretty amazing. And verse 5a says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. We've been kind of talking about how the tongue, and this, the context seems like we're talking about the tongue negatively all the time. But the tongue has so much power. Like we can, what we say, we can lift each, other's up or, lift each other up or we can tear people down. We can breathe life into people or we can breathe death. We can show mercy, as James says, or judgment. We can affirm a community of faith and we can multiply a community of faith or we can kill it. And so the tongue has, has these extremes to it. Last verse, he says, 
look again, and he's almost kind of exclaiming this again. Last part of verse 5. He says, how great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. And he moves from this idea of control, bridling, to destruction. And he kind of paints this picture of a campfire and a forest fire. Campfire is contained. We can use a campfire for food, for warmth, for just conversation. It's fun, right, being around a campfire. But then he says that can quickly turn into a forest fire and be set ablaze. And a forest fire is raging. It's destructive. It doesn't care what gets in its path. It just destroys trees and animals and houses and lives and, and all, these, all these things. It just doesn't care. And that's, that reminds me of just confrontation. Sometimes we think, oh, that's just a small fire. And it'll just go out. It'll die out on its own. But if we're living in a culture of family and affirmation, then confrontation will pour water on that fire right away and make sure that none of the embers flare up again because we're leading with that, right? Because if we let it go, who knows what's going to happen? If something just sparks out, an ember sparks out uh, outside of this containment onto somebody else or onto... Something else, boom, next thing you know, we have a forest fire. And it's so much harder to put that out than, than this little, little fire here. I hate that we teach, that kids know, like, sticks and stones, that, that whole thing, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I hate that because it's a lie. <laughs> words hurt. Words hurt very much. I'd rather get hit with a stick than then someone say something bad about me. And it's a lie we teach our kids. Well, I won't, I'm not going to teach my kids that. Whenever someone says that at school, I'm telling them to say, that's a lie. <laughs> but it's, it's because our tongue is the most, it's the greatest weapon we have, or greatest asset we have, I should say, and it's, uh, and it's the most deadly weapon we have. Because we can use it for good, or we can use it for bad. We can... Our tongue can incite the worst in other people or bring the best and awaken the best out of other people. And some of you, some of you have been carrying around words someone else has said that constantly hold you back or that constantly hurt you because someone said something last month or last year or five years ago or ten years ago that you're still carrying around because someone spoke death into your life. Some of you get to carry around words from last year, five years, ten years back where someone spoke life into you and you get to carry that around and it lifts you up. One pushes you way down and it feels like you're carrying a 50-pound backpack on your back everywhere you go. And sometimes it feels like you don't have it, but then you remember, oh, I still have that. But then the other side of it is when someone breathes words of life into you, it doesn't just feel like the backpack is off. It feels like you're floating in the air. Like you have like anti-gravity boots on. Like we live on the moon and we can jump high and we can do things that we can't normally do because someone said we could do something. Or someone said, yes, you are that good. And that's how we redeem our tongue for the kingdom. 
That's the gospel. One of the gospels introduces Jesus and John as the divine logos, as the divine word. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. It's talking about Jesus. And with him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's what a good word will do. That's what a perfect word will do. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. And that's what the gospel speaks over us. It doesn't speak words of condemnation and judgment and death over us. The gospel doesn't speak bondage and rules. The gospel doesn't speak principles and legalism. The gospel doesn't speak any of those things. It speaks freedom. It speaks love. It speaks joy. It speaks peace. It speaks healing to your brokenness. It speaks wholeness to what you lack. It speaks peace to the war that's raging inside you. It fills the void in you. All the gospel does is good things. And the gospel is both action, but it's word. It's the word. And it's so powerful because it speaks life in us constantly. And we get to build a culture of family and affirmation by speaking this, not just into us, but we get to build that in our city. And we get to speak this over our city. And we should not be ashamed of speaking this over our city because these words never bring death and judgment and bondage. They're always going to bring life and freedom and joy. And we get to be that for our city, and we get to speak that over our city.